Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church this morning. Thank you for coming. We continue in our series in the book of Mark. We've entitled the series Incredible. And this morning, we're going to dip into chapter 13. And the title of chapter 13 is Living Today in Light of Tomorrow. Living Today in Light of Tomorrow. And as you're turning to Mark chapter 13, I'd like to ask you, if you don't have a Bible, to get one, because I'm going to read the entire chapter, and it's so helpful to be able to follow along as I read this chapter. This is a chapter that is wonderful. This is a chapter that is puzzling. This is a chapter that is wonderfully puzzling, because the topic of this chapter is the future. And what makes this chapter puzzling is whether the future that is the topic of this chapter happens to be what will occur about 37 years after Jesus speaks these words. Jesus spoke these words roughly 33 AD. In 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. It was raised by the Roman general Titus. So was Jesus talking about that exclusively? Or was he pointing to not only that, but the end of all time? Was he pointing to his second coming? And so this chapter is about the future. It's about history. Is it about eschatology, the end times? And anytime you mention eschatology or the end times, people get interested. Actually, people also get massively hoodwinked, deceived, bamboozled, fooled. As a matter of fact, today you might be aware of some books that are out there right now that are hot and heavy on the New York Times bestseller list about the end times. One of them is written by a guy named Jonathan Cain, Khan, named The Harbinger. He wrote another one called The Shemitah, which is kind of follows up on that. And it's all about doom and gloom for America and how everything's coming together to bring about doom and gloom. You may be aware of some... Uh, uh, People talking about the Mayan calendar a few years ago. And supposedly the world was going to end on, in December 2012. Why? Because all the calendars kind of came to an end and everybody was getting ready for that. In addition to that, there are many, many people that would love to get your attention, my attention with the end. We're all interested. We all want to know about the doom and gloom, right? We want to know when's the end coming. And so it is ripe for controversy. It is ripe for controversy. But here is the point of this text. This text is not about controversy. Jesus didn't say these words to confuse us. He didn't say these words to launch a cottage industry of making end time charts and seminars and DVDs. He didn't didn't say these words to, to scare you. That's not God. He said these words to comfort you and me. He said these words that we might keep our eye on the main thing, and that is Jesus. History is his story. This happens to be talking about the end of his story. But the beginning of his story, Genesis tells us about the proto-gospel. In Genesis 3.15, God said, I'm going to bring a redeemer. And this Bible, we interpret every bit of this Bible through that Redeemer, through that story, his story. And so today, as we look at Mark chapter 13, we're interpreting his story. He's come, we know that. And he's going to come again, we know that. And we live in that period between his first coming and his second coming. And what Jesus wants to do here is teach us how do we live today in light of tomorrow? 
So it's a difficult passage. It's a passage that has prophetic peaks like mountaintops. And some of them are a little higher than others. And it's hard to get perspective. So it looks like they're right next to each other. And if you turn them sideways, you realize, no, there's a big valley between them. Big valley between them. And so, and so we want to hone in on the main thing. Actually, what we want to do is keep our eye on the ball. I'm going to keep our eye on the ball here. The ball is the gospel. The ball is Jesus. The ball is God's story of salvation. I was recently watching a special by these two magicians and they were showing, they did the trick where they had the three cups and they hid the balls underneath the cups. And actually they were doing amazing things. Not only was one ball, it was like 15 balls and they, they would bring the balls together and they would throw some out here and they would show up underneath the cup. And it's like, what are you doing? And they actually slowed it down and showed you what they did, and I still didn't figure out what they were doing. (laughs) But here's the point. With this topic, it can almost feel like that. Like, where's the ball? Under what cup? And what we want to do is we want to keep our eye on the ball. The ball is Jesus Christ. The ball is God's salvation story, the gospel. So as we read this, We want to receive it as the Lord intended it. We want to be encouraged by what Jesus is saying to us here. You see, in the first coming of Christ, there were many different threads of Old Testament prophecy that were weaving their way through the history of God's people. The Jews knew that there would be a king greater than David, but they were wondering, who is this king? And they knew that there would be a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. But who is this prophet? And they knew there would be a priest who would represent them, the ultimate high priest. And they just didn't know who he was. And there were these threads, these mysterious threads. And so what happened was that they they were trying to figure out what's it going to look like? How's it going to all come together? And, And the reality of the event of coming to Jesus, actually coming the first time, brought them all together. And so they understood it's Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. He is the prophet. He is the priest who represents us once and for all with his once and for all sacrifice on the cross. And he's representing us now in the heavenlies. And it all came together in his first coming. And in much the same way, there are these threads from his first coming to his second coming. When will it be? What will it look like? How will the end come? Well, I know that the kingdom has come in Christ. We know that. And we know that the kingdom is progressing as the gospel is being preached. And we know that the kingdom will be consummated at his second coming. But we don't quite see it fully. And we're looking at it from this side. Just like the Old Testament's prophets, we're looking at it from that side. But when Jesus came, it all came together. And when he comes again, it will all come together. But we have truths between now and then that teach us how to live in between his first and his second coming. And that's exactly what this text is designed to do. So I want to pray, and I'm going to then read the entire chapter 13. So let me pray. Lord God, I pray that as we read this text, we would see what is clear, that the main thing, the main thing would remain the main thing, that that which is clear would teach us and comfort us. Lord, your word is infallible, but no one individual is infallible in interpreting that word, and there are so many different interpretations of this chapter. Lord, give us the grace to, again, see the main thing, that that main thing is you, and it would encourage us, and it would give us grace 
Lord, I pray that we'd focus on the things that are undeniably clear, that we'd keep our eye on the ball by your spirit, for you wrote your word to encourage your people, and we believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read it together. Mark 13, you ready? Follow along with me. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his children and children will rise against their parents and give them and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14. But then, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
but concerning that day or that hour. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. But I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. (laughs) Good advice on a Sunday morning where none of us slept last night. (laughs) Stay awake. But Jesus is speaking more than just staying awake. Physically, he's saying staying awake spiritually. Listen, look at verse 1. Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time. Do you see it there? And he came out of the temple. And with him, the glory of God is leaving the temple. And the glory of God will be displaced from the temple to a hill outside of Jerusalem. Where in just two days, Jesus will die on a cross, which is the glory of God. And rise from the dead three days later and ascend into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And as he's leaving that temple, and as the glory is leaving the temple, now to reside not in a place, but in a person, his disciples, not quite getting it yet, say, wow, is this temple ever amazing? You see that in verse 1? One of them, probably Peter, said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now the temple as seen here in this diagram was wonderful and beautiful. The, The temple mount was 35 acres, and right in the middle of it sat this temple. And this temple was made with beautiful stones that were so white and they were inlaid with gold that if the sun shone on it and you were looking at the temple, it could blind you. It was one of the wonders of the world at that time. It was the place where Jews felt that it was indestructible. It's where God lived. So as they're walking out of the temple, Peter just says what you and I would say. Wow, this place is amazing. And Jesus stuns Peter and he stuns you and me and he lays down the truth here. The gospel, keep your eye on the ball. Listen to what he says. Verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. (laughs) Imagine you're there walking with Jesus. You're walking out of the temple. You're thinking in a few days he's going to be crowned as the king. He is Messiah. He probably is going to rule right from here. And as you're walking out of the temple and you're descending down into the valley and you're going to come back up on the Mount of Olives in just one verse, Jesus just says to you, you see these stones? Not one of them are going to be left on top of another. And as a matter of fact, church, that is what happened. 37 years later, in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus raised that temple And the soldiers, greedy for gain, most likely took every stone down and hunted for the gold that was inlaid there. It was literally torn down, every stone. Now, when Jesus finished his prophecy, they end up on the Mount of Olives. 
Look at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Now, if you see this map here, so here they were in the temple right there. So they go across the Kidron Valley and they come up onto the Mount of Olives. And Jerusalem was up on a mount, okay, it was elevated, but the Mount of Olives was about 150 to 200 feet above Jerusalem. So they're seated at the Mount of Olives, and they're looking, they had this perfect vantage point, kind of like the fireworks at Disney, you know, you go up to the International or whatever contemporary hotel, you can see the fireworks were here, it's the perfect place to be looking at the temple, and all the way that they've been walking across the Kidron Valley, you know the 12 of them have been going, what did he just say? Did I hear him right? How can that be? So when they get to the Mount of Olives, what do they do? Look at verse 4. Now this time it's just four of them. Peter, James, John, and then Andrew somehow slid in to the top three. I'm not sure how, but he got in the inner sanctum there. And so it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And they sit down in verse 4. Look what they say. Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? You see, for a Jew... A Jew associated the destruction of the temple with the end of time. You can't destroy the temple. This is where God lives. So this must be the end of time. So they're freaking out. They're going, wow, this timetable is accelerated. I mean, what's going on? Tell us, Jesus, when it's going to be. And as he answers them in verses 5 to 37, now we have, now you have, why this is so difficult to interpret. Is he only telling them about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Or is he also pointing down the quarters of time to his second coming? That's the question. But one thing is for sure, that Jesus had no intention of laying down any date setting on his return. As a matter of fact, he refuses really to set the date. And what he starts talking to them about is how they should live in between his first coming and his second coming. The main point is this. Jesus Christ, his life, his coming, his return. How does a Christian live? How do we interpret this destruction of the temple? Who is Jesus who is the new temple and replaces the temple? And he hasn't yet gone to the cross, so they don't understand. Why would you destroy this temple where God lives? Because he's been telling them, you're going to meet with God and me. And yet the point, here's the ball, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. For he tells us how we should live today in light of tomorrow. And here's the first thing he tells them. Verse 5, point 1, don't be fooled. Look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Don't be fooled. There's going to be those that are leading people astray. Those that are going to be speaking of wars and rumors of wars. Those that are going to be speaking of earthquakes. Those that are going to be saying, the world is coming to an end because of this natural disaster. I thought that last night. I hate lightning and, and I hate thunder. I don't like them. If you know me very well, if I'm outside, I am seeking shelter quickly. I felt the lightning was in my room. It was like exploding around my head at two in the morning. But, I mean, perfect weekend to be preaching this. You felt the world was coming to an end. I I went to get gas Friday night. Like I was in hand-to-hand combat to get gas. And of course, typical Miami, the, 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 the credit card readers at the pump broke. So you've got 15 million people lined up and they're all trying to pay at the register and the lady at the register is going at one mile an hour. 
The wor- I felt like the world was coming to an end, right? It didn't. But the point is this. He's saying in verses 5 to 8 that you're going to hear about wars. You're going to hear about rumors of war. Listen, listen. in in the 4,000 plus years of recorded history, do you know how many of those there haven't actually been a war? Less than 300. I forgot the exact stats, but most of the, the years of recorded history, there's been war. There's always war. Earthquakes. Listen, between the time that Jesus spoke these words and the destruction of the temple... There was the destruction of one whole city. Ever heard of Pompeii? You ever been there? It's amazing. All right, Mount Vesuvius went up. So is that the end of the world? See, see what I'm saying? So, so every one of these, and the point is this. Here's the point of, of point one. The disciples wanted to know the future, but Jesus turned to them, turned them and us to the present. The disciples wanted to know about the future. Give us dates. We want to set dates. I want to set my calendar. I want to be ready for that. What, what's going to happen? When's it going to happen? And Jesus said, I want to teach you how to live today. Today, don't be fooled. As he says here, see that no one leads you astray. Keep your eye on the ball. Why? Because you have a mission. Because you have a mission, church. And if your eye isn't on the ball, if you allow yourself to be fooled, you know what happens when you allow yourself to be fooled? You become anxious. Remember Y2K? Remember the bunkers that people built? Yeah, we laugh now, but beforehand, a lot of people were thinking about it. Don't raise your hand if you were one of them. You were on those crazy websites. What does that do? It makes you anxious. And the second thing Jesus says to us is this. I came the first time, I'm coming the second time, and in the in-between time, don't be fooled and don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Because we have a mission. Look at verse 11. He continues to describe what's going on. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You see, worldwide troubles are going to come our way. It's one thing to see earthquakes and stock markets crash and it's all that, but it's another thing when it kind of goes right down to me and I'm being persecuted. But don't you know that's what the church experienced right after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension? He was writing to a church, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark is written to the church in Rome. And he was writing to a church that was already being decimated. Nero was, was, was wreaking havoc on the church. He's writing to people that are being beaten and killed and their property taken. And, he, and so not only are there earthquakes and things like that happening that tempt you to think is the end coming, but I'm being persecuted. And if we're fooled by this stuff, then we become anxious and we become paralyzed. And that's what some people do with this stuff is they use it to paralyze us. And we invest our money in Y2K supplies rather than the gospel. And so he's saying, no, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Listen, you're going to have persecution. It's a horrible thing he's saying here. Look at this. They're going to be turned over to the councils in the, in the synagogues. Verse 9. They're going to stand before governors and kings. But what does he say in verse 10? But the gospel must first be proclaimed. So don't be anxious because when you stand before the Sanhedrin, when you stand before the kings, when you stand before that council at work, that HR counsel at work that finds something that you might have said a a year ago about same-sex marriage, and you don't get the job, or you get fired because you stand up and you say, Jesus is Lord, don't be anxious. 
It's going to feel like the end is coming. When you live in a country even worse than where we are today, where they do more than just take your job away or deny you university education, but they harm you or your family, don't be anxious. I'm going to give you what to say. I'm going to care for you. Yes, it may even come down to the gospel separating family members. We know that happens. It's tragic. We don't want it. But that's painful. The gospel may even separate old high school friends. Don't be anxious. This is what the church then experienced. This is what we experienced. And listen, Peter, who was standing right next to Jesus when he said that on the Mount of Olives, Peter, later in his life, years later, wrote 1 Peter 5, and he said the exact same thing in 1 Peter 5 that Jesus is saying here in Mark 13. Read it with me. 1 Peter 5, 6. Peter, pastor of the church in Rome. Peter, standing next to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Peter, stunned by Jesus' pronouncement that the temple would be wiped out. Peter, wanting to know when it would happen. Peter, who heard this from Jesus, later writes it to God's people and he says this, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. There's no pride so great to think you know better than anybody how it's going to end up. So you write 15 books, four DVDs, five seminars. And and, and you're wrong. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Why, church? Because he cares for you. Does God care for me? Is the stock market losing a thousand points? There goes my 401k. It's now a 201k. There's an earthquake. Hurricane Erica's coming up. Come on, admit it. There's a moment. My daughter said, Dad, are we going to prepare? Okay, don't follow, do as I say, not as I do, okay? I said, baby, I'm so tired. I just don't think it's going to be a big deal. <laughs> Oops. I did get some gas on Friday night. At least I tried. Came back, my glasses like this, you know. I was limping. <laughs> Old ladies were throwing elbows at me. <laughs> don't ever go get gas in high lip. That's... Be sober-minded. Be watchful. You see what Peter says there? Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter is referencing what Jesus is saying here in verses 9 to 13. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, is pointing to the end. In Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, church, how do we live between his first and second coming? We live as folks that will not be fooled, and we live as folks who will not be anxious. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We know this is his story. Nothing's happening outside of his control for his glory, but we will suffer. We will suffer. The early church suffered. Jesus suffered. Jesus is saying, they brought me before the Sanhedrin. They're going to do the same to you. But I'll give you what to say. I'll care for you, church. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Point three. How do we live between his first and second coming? What does it look like to live today in light of tomorrow? Point three. Be alert. Be alert. Be alert. Five times in this chapter, you'll find the phrase either be on guard You find that in verse 9, if you want to look at it for yourself real quick. Verse 23 and verse 33. Five times, three times it's be on your guard, and twice you you find stay awake, stay awake. Verse 35, it's a prophetic word for some of you, stay awake. 
verse 35 and verse 37. He ends the whole thing. He kind of summarizes the whole thing. But what I say to you, I say to all, pause. Jesus says, pause, stay awake. I choose to phrase it, be alert. Be alert, be alert, be alert. Being alert means that we are on guard. It means that we're awake. Listen, I think being awake in this sense means to have my eyes open, fixed on the ball, using the opening illustration. If I'm asleep, I can't see the ball. Never forget when I was playing baseball one time. It's a sad story. And I was playing first base, and uh, I was holding a guy on, and uh, my, my... my high school days were not glorious at all, junior high days. And I had um, partaken in some substances before the game. i never forget, man. I kind of just nodded off for a second. And the pitcher whirled. And I mean, he threw a pickoff. And I'm just, I'm glad I'm still here because it missed my glove and missed my head. And then I woke up. <laughs> Guy took second. Coach says, what's wrong with you, Pino? Oh, I don't know, coach. I had a tough night last night. <laughs> Stay awake. Keep your eye on the ball. Uh, It's coming. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Jesus is Lord. Don't be anxious. That's what he's saying here. And then he gives us a verse that is sumamente difícil, or in English, really, really difficult. (laughs) Verse 14. All right. He starts the whole be alert section with verse 14. Why not? But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, parentheses, let the reader understand, close parentheses. Oh, great, let the reader understand. <laughs> Would someone please help the reader understand? And I will attempt that, but I will do it with much fear and trembling. Uh, Alistair Begg, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, th- both guys, uh, these guys, many of them are saying, look, anybody that comes to you and, and it is dogmatic about this, uh-uh. we see through a, 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 a glass darkly. What we see clearly is Jesus. He's come and he's coming back. But some of these details, not so much. But I'm going to try. In the parallel passage to Mark 13, Matthew 24, Matthew tells us who this abomination of desolation is, or at least where he's referenced. Matthew tells us it's the one that Daniel, the prophet, mentioned. And if you go back to Daniel the prophet, which we will not, you can this afternoon. That'd be a good thing to do this. Spend all afternoon reading about the abomination of desolation in Daniel the prophet. But Daniel the prophet, most likely, and I believe this, was pointing us when he mentions the abomination of desolation. He was mentioning something that happened in 167 BC, before Christ, when a ruler, a Syrian ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, came into the temple set up an idol of Zeus and asked the people to worship Zeus and uh, sacrificed a pig on the altar in in the temple. All right, so that gives us a clue. I think here Jesus is actually referring to what will happen 37 years later when the Roman general Titus will enter the temple and he will be that one who is where he ought not to be. And the temple will be raised. But, though I believe Jesus was speaking historically, I also believe there's ample room, and I actually personally believe this, that he was also speaking eschatologically. What do I mean? 
Jesus speaking historically is, guys, this is going to happen. He's going to be standing in the temple. He's going to raise the temple and it's going to be gone. That's going to happen in 37 years. He didn't tell them when, by the way. But I think he was also speaking eschatologically because I think there's ample evidence in the Bible to say that that event, though, was the primary thing he was saying, did not fully fulfill it, but there would be an event to come at the second coming of Christ when there will be a man of perdition that this antichrist figure who will come at Christ's second coming. James Edwards says it this way. Titus's destruction of Jerusalem is like a scouting film. It gives an authentic picture of one's future opponent, but there is, of course, a great deal of difference between clashing with players in the stadium as opposed to simply watching them on film. I, I think this, this verse 14 is a hinge, and it kind of points us down the road. But remember this. It was meant to encourage. Jesus is saying it's going to happen. If you read it here, as many good friends remind me, he's very, very specific on what they should do. As a matter of fact, when this happened in 70 AD, we'll look at it, verses 14 to 18. He talks about fleeing to the hills. He talks about forget about your stuff, just get out of town. And and when this happened, Christians listened to him and they were saved. Because when this happened, it was so terrible. When he talks about that tribulation in verse 19 that was never, has never been, a million people died in Jerusalem. People were dying of starvation wherever they, they, they would just fall. There was cannibalism. It was horrible in 70 AD when Rome raised the temple. But I don't feel it fully fulfilled all that was being said here. I believe he was pointing down the road. And what, what causes me to believe that is verse 24 and moves us to our last point. Be expectant. But in those days. But in those days. So it seems to be speaking of now even further. So, so the view is looking down the quarters of time. Don't, don't lose me here. Stay with me. I know this is hard. But I want you to be comforted. Because here's the point. Just as in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, we're not to be fooled and we're not to be anxious, but rather we're to be alert or on guard. So we are to be expectant, expectant. If you read verses 24 to 37, you see a great expectation. We'll just look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth. And then he uses the fig tree as a symbol. And then in verse 32, what does he say? Because everybody wanting to know when that is. And he's saying, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Is there any part of no one that you don't get? (laughs) No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Verse 33, be on your guard, stay awake. You do not know when the time will come. All right, so why is this here? Is this here just to introduce uh, a consternation? I want to know. I want to know. Tell me. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. 
God is saying, keep your eye on the ball. He's saying, trust me. History is my story. You don't need to know. I'm returning. I'm returning. And I want you to be expectant about that return. Listen, you didn't know who the king like David, but greater than David would be. You didn't know who the prophet like, Mo, like Moses, but greater than Moses would be. You didn't know who the priest uh, like the priesthood, but, but superseding the priesthood would be. But then when I came, when I actually came the first time, I brought it all together and you saw that he was crucified on a cross. I didn't figure that one out. That he would become the new temple, that he would rise from the dead, that he would ascend into heaven. That he would be now, right now, that great high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. So as that all came together after a thousand, uh, several, a thousand or so years of prophecy, and it was, what's going on? But I know it's coming. I have faith that it's coming. So at the second coming, all of these threads will come together when he comes back. But he's coming back, church. And we should be expectant, church. Martin Luther said this, there are two days on my calendar. This day and that day. Well, what does that mean now? Well, Paul tells us what it means. Because though Paul wasn't there, Paul, the apostle, had the testimony of Christ. And listen to what Paul says about that day in Titus 2. In Titus 2, we're to be expectant. Listen, when a woman is expectant, I notice all the expectant moms, they're they're all gone today, which is probably a wise move. They want to get stuck in a flood somewhere and you're expectant. But when you're expectant, ladies, right? It's a little painful, It's a little bit uncomfortable, but you're expecting what? The birth of something beautiful, your child. And and so, and so this, this, the kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom will come, salvation has come, salvation is coming, salvation will come. This idea of Jesus saves us, he is saving us, and he will save us. These ideas are all throughout scripture. We have to let the clarity of all of scripture help us understand this very difficult chapter. But listen to what Paul says. In Titus 2, 11 to 14. About this expectant aspect of how we live between the, the two comings of Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, his first coming. The grace of God there is Christ. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So this is how you live in the present age. He's just expanding what Jesus is saying here. Verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. That's pointing to the the day of his return. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory that moved from the temple to the hill outside of Jerusalem. The glory at the cross. That glory is the glory that Jesus said he will share with us at his second coming. But we get to that glory the same way Jesus did through the suffering of this world. We experience it to some measure, but it will be consummated on that day. Now listen to what that does for us. It gives us hope. Verse 13 again. Waiting for our blessed hope. I'm walking in self-control in the blessed hope. I'm renouncing ungodliness, though I really want to do it again because of my blessed hope. I'm renouncing worldly passions and materialism. I'm doing what Corey said last week. I'm denying myself what the word said last week that Corey preached. I'm denying myself and I'm taking up my cross. I'm saying no to that vacation, no to that new couch, no to whatever, because I'm going to invest in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the glory fills my eyes. I'm not freaked out about when. I don't have all my prophecy charts that I'm adjusting here. I'm looking at Jesus. He's coming back. And I love him. And look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us. Why? 
To, re- to make us confused or arrogant? No, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, Jesus is returning for his people. That I know. And that gives us such immense hope and it changes how we live and who we live for. Instead of trying to figure out prophetic calendars, let us cultivate our gospel hope, living for the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming me from the lawlessness that I did as a young man. To purify us as his people for his own possession who are zealous for good works and he's coming back for his elect. Are you part of that group? That's what you really need to be thinking about. Are you? Do you know him? Does he know you? Is he calling you? Jesus is coming back. And he commands us to be on guard, to be alert, to be stay awake. He ends the chapter with these words. I say to all, stay awake. What's the appeal? The appeal is to stay awake. The appeal is to not be fooled. The appeal is to not be anxious. The appeal is to be alert. The appeal is to be expectant, to stay awake. What does that look like, Al, for my life? I'm not sure, and I can't speak for you. I can speak the truth and allow this truth to speak to your heart. What does it mean for you to stay awake? But I would say at a minimum, it would mean that your eyes are filled with the vision of Jesus Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul gives us this in Colossians 1, 15 to 16, 17 on the screen. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Remember, history is his story. History started with God, not man. I love this quote by Alistair Begg. The God who initiated time and who has broken into time in the person of Jesus is the one who controls the end of time and the transformation of all that is now into all that will be. Read that again. The God who initiated time and who has broken into time in the person of Jesus is the one who controls the end of time and the transformation of all that is now into all that will be. And it's going to be glorious. Back to Colossians. That God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When he comes back a second time, it's going to all make sense. Between now and then, let us, let us, let us, Be on guard. Let us stay alert. Let us not be fooled. Let us not be anxious. Let us be expectant because the glory of God in Jesus Christ fills our eyes. Does it fill your eyes? Are you awake? Let's pray. Worship team, would you join me? Lord, it's so easy to doze off. It's so easy to be fooled. It's so easy to be anxious. Oh Lord, that's probably the one that I wrestle with the most. Lord, it's so easy to lose my expectation, in a sense to lose faith, because of all the difficulties, not only in my life personally, but in this world. If we look around and let this world fill our eyes rather than your glory, 
Oh, Lord, we're susceptible to be swept along, easily fooled. Lord, would you deliver us as your people, as your church, as we behold our God. Lord, may you fill our eyes with your glory. Lord, if there are those here this morning that are are not only not awake, but let's just start with they're not alive spiritually. They're dead. Oh, Lord, awaken their soul. Give life to their dead soul. Let them see Jesus, though they may not understand all that was spoken today. May they understand Jesus Christ is Lord, who came to die for their sins, raised from the dead for their forgiveness, ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning on the right hand of the Father. May they repent and believe. And for those of us that have dozed off a little, Lord, help us to awaken as we behold our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing that song, Behold Our God.